bother me at all, but my wife can be claustrophobic. And sometime in the middle of the night, she was like a woman possessed. She just jumped up in a two-man tent, and there's not a lot of room to jump, ripped open the zipper, jumped outside, and had to take a breath. Well, at that time, I, I directed her to maybe read Psalm 4, because in Psalm 4, King David talks about a time when he was feeling a sense of claustrophobia. In verse 1 of Psalm 4, David writes, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You might not see claustrophobia in that verse, but that word for distress actually means narrow spaces. Something was going on in David's life that made him feel like the walls were closing in, made him feel like he was the third man in a two-man tent, and he just wanted to get out. And it's interesting because the word for relieved or deliver there in verse 1 is, is, is a word that means open spaces. It's a word that means open spaces. It's not just tight spaces that make us feel claustrophobic sometimes, is it? I mean, for King David, it's not that he was in a tight space physically, but he was in a tight space mentally and emotionally. Sometimes trouble can be so overwhelming that we can't sleep, uh, we can't get away from it, we can't stop thinking about it. All day long, we might be making ourselves busy and, and pushing out all the bad thoughts, all the bad things that might have happened, the things that somebody said about me or things that somebody said to my face that wasn't very nice. Maybe we're thinking about the embarrassing thing that I did and everybody was laughing at me and I laughed too but I didn't think it was funny. I just wanted to hide, and it really hurt. Sometimes I think about the mistakes I made or the sin that I committed and uh, how it ruined so much. And if I let myself go, I can even think about sickness and disease and war and death and divorce and money, and all of these things flood our minds sometimes to the point where we feel like we're being confined, and we do everything we can to push it out, but there's one time when we really struggle to push those things out, and that's at bedtime. We're alone on our beds, our heads are on our pillows, it's dark, and all we have to do at that time is think. And we can't stop thinking about it. And we feel the walls closing in. And sometimes the pressure is too much. That's where King David is. This is the second of four psalms that he wrote about trouble getting to sleep at night. In Psalm 3, he had trouble getting to sleep at night because uh, his son Absalom had rebelled against him and was leading an army against him. In Psalm 4, we don't know exactly what was going on, but it didn't seem to be any outward enemies. It seemed to be more what people were saying about him. And Psalm 4 is interesting in that he kind of sits back while he's on his bed and he starts thinking, how do most people deal with this claustrophobia they feel when their, their thoughts are just pressing them in and they don't see any way out? And then he asks, how should I feel? Follow along as I, as I read the psalm. We're going to see the resolution that he makes in his mind. Psalm 4 for the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? 
How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many of us, or many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance, countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. David goes through this psalm with all these thoughts on his head, and he's saying, how do people sleep at night? if they don't know God, and how should I get to sleep at night when these thoughts are pressing in, in when I do know God? We see two comparisons or actually contrasts between how unbelievers deal with these kinds of thoughts that go through our mind and how believers think through them. And we, can, we see three points that uh, <coughs> defining what each person would say. Uh, the first point is uh, about relationship, and I'll point that out as we go through it. The second point is their reaction, and the third point is their resolution, what they resolve to do, Relation, their relationship, their reaction, and their resolution. Now, when it says sons of man there in verse 2, that's the one category. That's the unbeliever. Just your average Joe who doesn't know Jesus, this is how he deals with his problems. And the first thing we see has to do with his relationship. He says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? Now, this is the toughest point in this passage, but if you can understand this, if this can click in your mind, then you'll be able to understand the entire passage. You might ask, what does this have to do with relationship? He says, O sons of men, how long will my honor, some versions say glory. Does anybody have a different word there besides honor or glory? Okay, honor or glory. How long will my honor become a reproach? This word for honor, David is saying, there is something that's so valuable, valuable to me. There's something that, that I consider, it's, it's my glory. And if you think about glory, that's kind of a hard term. Think about glory on the basketball court, maybe. When you think of glory on the basketball court, you're a basketball player, and you go, and you just sink a three-pointer. That's your glory. That, that shows something about you. It shows your skill. It shows your quality. It reveals something that belongs to you. And David is saying, these men are taking things that I think are valuable, something that is true and honorable and noble about me, and they're considering it shameful. They're, they're, they're making it a reproach. The thing that David thought was his glory, the thing that, about him that defined him was his relationship with God. In fact, if you can scan to Psalm 3 in verse uh, 3, David talks about his relationship with God. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory and the one who lifts my head. And David is saying, you know what? The first thing that these guys do, I notice that they do in times like this, is they completely reject God. They think that trusting in God is stupid. And, and, and they look at me and they see that I'm trusting in God and they say, um, that's dishonorable, that's weird, that's strange. Uh, we would never do that. And the problem with that is, is that it completely sets them apart from any kind of help. 
The problem for unbelievers on a troubled night is that he's rejected God. He's chosen to live a life apart from God. And in the day of trouble, who does he call out to? Well, we actually see who he calls out to, what he turns to. We see that in his reaction. So his relationship is one opposed to God. Secondly, in verse 2, his reaction is loving what is worthless. David asks, how long will you love what is worthless? His response to trials is that he loves emptiness. That is, when trouble comes, he's lying on his bed, and since he has no God to help him overcome, he looks for anything, anything that will distract him, anything that will make him think about something else. Uh, you know, that's something I used to do. I, was, I, I, I would be thinking about something all day. It might be bothering me, or it might be uh, consuming me so that I couldn't sleep. And I said, man, I just got to get some rest. I got to go to work tomorrow. Um, I got to rest. I got to test tomorrow. I know, I'm just going to turn on the television and uh, I'll fall asleep listening to the television. That way, uh, my mind will be focused on, on what's going on there. I won't think about the thing that's bothering me and eventually I'll fall asleep. And you know what? It works. Watching TV works to help you get to sleep. But there's one thing that watching television doesn't do. It doesn't solve your problem. Because as soon as you wake up the next morning, your problem is still there. And you can't just go around watching television all day. No, you can't go around watching television all day, even though you would really want to, or playing video games, or, or listening to music, or, or constantly trying to push out the troubles that you're facing. Television is empty, isn't it? It's, it's worthless, and yet that's the kind of thing that the person who rejects God has to fall back on. It's the same idea in Proverbs 31. You, you don't necessarily have to turn there. I'll just tell you a story. Some people don't turn to television. Some people turn to drugs. And in Psalm 31, uh, the mother of King Lemuel told him, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. I mean, Lemuel's mother was saying, um, as a believer in God, you're a child of the king. You have no reason to be drinking. The person who should be drinking is the person who rejects God. That's all they have. That's all they got. They don't have anything else but that. So let them drink and forget. But you, you can't be drinking and forgetting. That drink, that drugs is another thing that David in Psalm 4 can describe as worthless. And finally, his resolution then, because he's rejected God and because he's holding on to things that are worthless, he has to end up deceiving himself. And so he says in verse two, David says in verse 2 that they aim at deception. They aim at deception. They have to lie to themselves to make them think, well, you know what, the drugs, I need the drugs. They help me get to sleep at night. They help me cope with life. You know, I, I need the social media. I need the, I, I need the activity. I need, I need all this stuff just to help me cope with life. And they say things like, it will be better in the morning which is deception because problems don't solve themselves overnight. And if it's a sin that's bothering them, they might say, 
Well, you know what? My sin was really justified because their sin was bigger, which is a deception because God doesn't judge us based on how our sin looks compared to the next guy's. He judges us based on how our sin is compared to his own holiness. And sometimes we lie to ourselves by blaming our problems on some kind of physical ailment or some kind of syndrome or some kind of disease. And, and yet that's no excuse. That's no excuse for the problems that we face. It might be a trial to overcome, but it's no excuse. And I think the biggest lie that people tell themselves in hard times is, if I just end it now, everyone will be better off. And sadly, a lot of people, a lot of people your age even, make that ultimate decision. And you know what? If there's somebody who's rejected God, and if there's somebody who's loving what is worthless, and they lie to themselves and say, by killing myself, I'm better off. That is the ultimate lie. And then we see the word Selah. We don't exactly know what Selah means. Most people think that it was some kind of pause in the music, maybe an instrumental uh, time, of a break between uh, verses or something like that to give us time to reflect. And it's a good time to reflect for us to say, have I rejected God? Have I... Am I dealing with my problems by aiming at what is worthless and am I deceiving myself with uh, lies that I tell myself just to get by? Well, in the end, uh, we, we see their response or we see the result, I should say, in verse 6. That there's just this desperation. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. It's, it, it's like they're saying, what good is going to come of this? This life is worthless. And in their desperation, even though they've rejected God, they say, Lord, help me. And, and they don't mean it, or they would turn and repent. But that's just their cry. Who's going to show us any good? Well, David, after contemplating that in verse 2, turns to verses 3 through 5, and he says, this is how I deal with my problems. The first thing he says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call. Automatically, he's completely on a different track than the unbeliever because his relationship is with God. It's not rejecting God, it's with God. The Lord has set apart the godly man, and that word for godly is the Old Testament word for loving kindness or grace. It's the one who's received God's grace we understand in the New Testament, it, we've received God's grace as the Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from sin. Uh, nothing can separate us now from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, we have this relationship. So from the very beginning, if all else fails and I die... Because of the problem I'm facing, I have a relationship with God. And the benefit for me on earth is in the second part of verse 3. The Lord hears when I call to Him. From the, from the, from the beginning, David says, I have something they don't have. 
Psalm 118 says, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. Chances are these guys that he was thinking about were, who, who were making his honor a reproach were saying things about him. They were slandering him in some way. There was something that they were doing that, that made him really feel confined. And, and he says, you know what? I can look on satisfaction with that because I know God's on my side. Not only that, second part, the Lord hears when I call. That's his relationship. We see his response to the trial then in verse 4. It says, tremble and do not sin. Um, some versions might say, be angry and do not sin. Uh, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Ephesians 4 where it says, be angry and do not sin. You, you might be familiar with that one. Actually, I don't think the word angry is the best word there, even in the New Testament. The word in the New Testament is orge. The word here um, is one that you wouldn't understand even if I pronounced it. So it's tremble. It's the idea not just of anger, but of any kind of extreme emotion. Any kind of extreme emotion. It can be extreme sadness, extreme gladness, extreme uh, um, anger, extreme emotion. Extreme depression is what it could be. And so what David is saying here, it is in the imperative, tremble. Go ahead and tremble. That is, don't, don't deny that you have problems, okay? It's not like you're trusting in God and you're, for, and you're denying that there are any problems on earth. These problems are real. They're making me feel this way. I'm, I'm responding with this extreme emotion uh, of, of anger, of, of sadness, of depression, of whatever. Uh, I, I'm emotional about it, and that's why I can't sleep. But, he goes on to say... Tremble and do not sin. See, 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 the unbeliever, he trembles and he says, oh man, this is a horrible feeling. I've got to find a way away from this. I'm going to aim or I'm going to love what's worthless. And, and, and David says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to be emotional. That's, that goes with the territory, but I'm not going to sin. Instead, what he does in verse 4, his, his reaction is he meditates in his heart upon his bed and he's still, he, he, he calms himself down he says, I'm going to meditate. And what he meditates on is the truth of God's word, the truth of who God is. And he starts recounting to himself all the reasons why these problems that seem so big and so real are maybe not quite as big and as real when you think about a God who is even bigger yet. Meditate in your heart upon your head, on your bed and be still. And again, we see the word Selah. Stop and think about that. Take some time to think about the goodness of God. Take some time to think about the power of God. Take time to think about how small your problems are in comparison with the Almighty Creator who made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Think about the God who, when we were facing the biggest problem, sin, gave the ultimate solution by causing his son to be executed at the hands of wicked men so that we could escape the problem and the consequences of sin. These are the things we meditate about. And then his uh, resolution then at, the, at the end, so we have relationship, reaction, and resolution. His, his resolution we find in verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. He said, all right, I still have this problem. 
I may not be able to do anything about it, but I'm going to think thoughts that are true, and I am going to double down on my commitment to Jesus Christ. I'm going to offer my sacrifices. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that things aren't bad. I know they're bad, but I'm going to trust in the Lord, and I'm not going to let it get the better of me. I'm going to continue being faithful to God. I'm not going to be tempted to, to drink or do drugs. I'm not going to be tempted to sit around playing video games all day. I'm going to offer my sacrifices. That is, go about my Christian life. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to serve. I'm going to love others. I'm going to be less consumed with me and more consumed with the well-being of others. I'm going to do all of these things that I'm supposed to be doing as a follower of Christ. And I'm going to trust in the Lord to do the things that I can't do. His result is very different than the unbeliever's result. You see, the unbeliever's result again in verse 6, who's going to show us any good? There's no hope. But his result, you see, his consequence in verse, verses 7 and 8. All of a sudden, he can sleep. In fact, he sleeps with a joyful heart because he understands that his God is bigger than his problems. He says, you've put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Now think about this for a second. When do grain and new wine abound? Figuratively speaking, for us in Nebraska. Fall, in the harvest, right? After harvest comes which holiday? Thanksgiving, and after Thanksgiving comes which holiday? Christmas and New Year's. This, for us, is when our grain and our new wine abound. This is, this is when we're happy and we're celebrating and everything is good. And, and uh, what David is saying is, I have Christmas and Thanksgiving kind of joy every night on my bed, even when I have troubles, even more than when they're actually celebrating Christmas and Thanksgiving. You have put gladness in my heart more than their best holidays. In fact, what we know about the unbelievers at this point is that their best holidays are probably just faking it anyway, right? They're probably just putting on a good front and, and using the holidays as a distraction from their problems. And David says, that thing that they use as a distraction to fool themselves into thinking that everything is okay, that feeling that they, sh they, they, they strive for is the feeling I naturally have just by trusting in God as I lay on my bed at night. And finally, in verse 8, he's able to get a little bit of sleep. He says, in peace. I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And you might be wondering, what kind of peace is this? Well, it's the kind of peace that helps you sleep at night. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a major art gallery, and um, they were interested in sponsoring a competition for local artists. And so they put out this thing. They said, we want to have an exhibit entitled Peace. And the, the local artist who can uh, best represent in some form of art peace is, will win some kind of prize, some kind of uh, uh, monetary prize or something like that. The painting that won the prize was, was very interesting because it was a painting of this rocky seashore and the clouds were all black and gray and swirling like they do in the midst of a big thunderstorm. It almost looked like a hurricane, not quite, but almost. 
and the rain was coming down and there was lightning and the waves were crashing against the rocks. And, and at first glance, you look at this painting and you say, how in the world does that symbolize peace? But then you look a little bit closer and there in one of the hollows of the rock on the rocky seashore is this bird. It's a mother bird and in this mother bird's, under this mother bird's wing is one of her chicks and the chick was peacefully resting. And that's peace. Peace isn't the absence of war. Peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace isn't us um, not having any trials. Peace is us being able to find rest in spite of the trials. Because the thing that is happening inside of us is so much more real to us than the thing that's happening all around us. So this gladness from verse 7, this peace in verse 8, doesn't mean we never cry. It never means, it, it doesn't mean we never question why. It doesn't mean that it's even going to end up okay for us physically on earth. I mean, some problems are so bad that we end up dead because of them. That doesn't change anything for King David. Because the resolutions he makes in bed at night are the kind that help him find rest and help him trust in a holy God. Because whatever problems he's facing are so much smaller than the God of his salvation. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. We're ending a few minutes early, so let me just uh, leave you with a couple of questions, and maybe you can have an ex extended uh, e-group, is that what you call them, e-group time. Um, but really think about this. I mean, this is, this is a time for you to really ask yourself, Am I, am I deceiving myself with the ways that I try to deal with my problems, however big or small they are? Or am I acting like King David in light of his problems? So let me, let me just ask you, how do you get to sleep at night? That, that's a question I want you to ask or address in your small group. How do you sleep at night when you're facing problems? When all the thoughts come flooding in of all that went wrong that day or all that's wrong in the world, what do you do? Not what should you do, what do you do? Are you more like King David who says, yeah, this is a really tough time, but, I, but I'm going to handle it well? Or are you more like these sons of men who say, man, if I, just, uh, if I just listen to music, I'll just drift off and I can ignore all the problems. Or I can do something to distract me. And just because you do that, it doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. Like I said, I, I, I used to struggle with that. Um, I had a friend who the only way she could get to sleep at night was, was by taking sleeping pills. And one day she came to my wife and she said, I'm tired of depending on my sleeping pills to help me get to sleep at night. I just want to trust in the Lord. And so by God's grace and 
with the doctor's uh, care, we, um, we helped her get off sleeping, sleeping pills, and she hasn't returned to them as far as I know. So be honest with yourself. How do I get to sleep at night? Second question you need to ask is, how should the follower of Jesus deal with these thoughts that press in on us so that I feel like I'm surrounded, I'm confined in a tight space? According to Psalm 4, how should I deal with that? And maybe think of some practical ways that um, you can tremble and not sin. Think about some practical things, some very specific things that when I'm facing this problem in life, I meditate on this truth about God. And then talk maybe about your resolution, how you can offer sacrifices uh, in our context today. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this psalm. Because often, Lord, the face that we put out for our friends and our family is, is just us trying to cope. And it may not accurately reflect what we're feeling inside, the rage, the hurt, the pain. And sometimes, Lord, our, our joy, our gladness is, is just an outward um, emotion to hide what's going on inside. I pray, Father, that we would be able to re- reflect on Psalm 4 today, that we would not go the route that unbelievers go, because that's the only way they can go, but that we would resolve to face our trials as true followers of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.